Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. I'm pleased to say back on home ground is Thea Lenarduzzi. We're recording this podcast slightly late because I moved house yesterday <sighs> and now can sympathise with her struggles to become a feudal landlady. How many um, how many acres are we talking? Are we talking hectares? Hectare, it's, it's not that big. Although I feel <laughs> exhausted because I spent all of yesterday carrying boxes upstairs you need some peasants well i'll tell you what there is a psychological reason i do it i I feel emasculated when i'm around people who work hard for a living (laughs) uh, uh, and work manually and sort of with strength so whenever i'm with them i feel i have to show i can do it as well and do you start saying things like lads and cheers mate and things like that not quite but what i did by the end i was like carrying very heavy boxes for five hours to show that i could still do it and i was kind of competing with them and they obviously didn't know that i was competing with them Mm. So they, and they weren't competing with me. So they were sort of going off and having crafty fags and stuff like that. And yeah. I was just sort of carrying on to yeah. show that I could still do it. When we were moving, we uh, we packed so many uh, more things into one box than you were supposed to. And it was mostly books. Yeah. And so when the people came to move us, they just sort of refused to, to lift them. Because oh, they really? were so heavy. So my husband and I were just doing most of that lifting by ourselves. Yeah. Trying to, to be really strong about it. You have to bring it back to books, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, I thought we were exploring all sorts of things, you know, exploration of the masculine soul there, but oh no, no I've got too many books, exactly. And, it's, <laughs> and you, you, they, they looked at me, I was like, you're yeah, that whole wall. Yeah, is this is, a joke? Yeah, it's like, no, this is not a joke. Um, and I'm also competing with you, you yes. don't realise. And I know someone who uh, who once yeah. asked the uh, the movers to, to transport a, an unused, kind of a, an unopened bag of bricks, <laughs> which does just seem like a joke. That like, I've unfair. got some bricks, yeah. <laughs> they need to Did go they say as no? well. No, they took them. Yeah. That's heartwarming. Um, so anyway, we're here, which is very good. Uh, if you're listening to this and not subscribing to the TLS, have a quiet but stern word with yourself, then head to your phone and Google TLS subscriptions. We'll wait here while you do that. Coming up on the show this week, while we squabble on social media and moan about the restless contingencies of modern life, the world is being slowly poisoned, the environment destroyed. Why don't we care about such an apocalypse more? TLS staffer Claire Saxby has reviewed three books on the subject and is here to offer an answer. 
Now, that Caligula, did he get a bad press or what? Famous for his sexual excesses and the hashtag fake news claim that he made a horse a senator, he's the subject of a new fictional treatment in a novel by Simon Turney. Classics editor and national treasure Mary Beard will tell us the truth about the man. And last week saw the end of the tenure of Arsene Wenger as Arsenal manager, a role he appeared to be literally named for. History editor and Arsenal fan David Horsepool has some thoughts to share with us. Claire Saxby's piece this week begins as follows. There's no issue so huge, pressing or as diffuse as the degradation of the natural environment. In spite of this, the thought of it doesn't stir up much of an emotional response in inhabitants of the developed world. And she's surely right about that. I presented a radio phone-in show for three years and know from bitter experience the stony silence in response to a debate about, say, climate change. Indeed, I once did an hour asking why does nobody care about the environment? It remains a good question. It's for several reasons, I reckon. The fact that we are individually too small and the problem too large. That the price will be paid most keenly by generations later than our own. And that fatigue we feel with dire prognostication that robs them of their force. So how do we get past, as Claire puts it, our denial and despair? She joins Thea and me in the studio now. Claire, hello. Hello. So... Why is this such a, I mean, really all three books are there to try and say, why is this such a difficult, incommunicable subject? Well, I think uh, a large part of it is to do with scale. It's kind of both in terms of space and time. It's really hard to kind of wrap your head around something that's happening everywhere simultaneously in so many different forms and in different ways, more than we could sort of even begin to hope to get to grips with with. and we're so small do you think there's a combination of it being big and we're because if you stopped throwing away plastic the argument is well china throws away four billion tons of plastic so your efforts are meaningless yeah it's the same with any problem i suppose we we kind of need it to be more personal more like immediate um like we like to have things that are really intimate and specific like with the refugee crisis like it was that picture of Alan Kurdi washed up on the Turkish beach and then suddenly people like sat up and got angry about it. But there isn't really a corresponding image you could use for climate change or for the environment as a whole because it's so diffuse. When people do find an image, it's, it's a polar bear. Yeah, exactly. And they're, that and they're that, quite that polar bear walking around in uh, supposed to be the... Ar- it's, it is the it's Arctic. It's on a small floating fragment of ice. And, yeah. Yeah. Or there's that one which is wandering through like a, there's no ice at all. Oh, yeah. yes, just getting thinner and thinner, thinner and, yeah. and, then, and then lying down. But this, this focus on the polar bear is obviously a, a problem. Yeah. I Why, mean, though? Because people care about animals in this country, for example, more than they care about people, largely. Why do we not care more about cold animals? Well, I think it's just a bit reductive to have such a cliched image sort of associated with such a concept that's actually really complex and it's about more than just melting ice caps. It's about... Uh, societal structures and and how we see our energy use and things that I just think that reducing it to one animal out of millions of different species that we don't necessarily feel this emotional tug. It's I suppose it's not just even this, the one animal, it's the fact that if you think about the polar bear you're localising in a very specific mm. uh, part of the world whereas what you say in your piece um, 
so well is that it starts with the soil under everyone's feet. That's that's almost the, the beginning with what we need to start dealing with now is the quality of our own soil. Yeah, I think making it specific to places that people are in who have the power to make changes, who have the power to, if it's donate money or make like lifestyle changes, but making them engage with their immediate environment rather than thinking they're just helping some distant Arctic space that they're never going to interact with. One of the books is called Mourning Nature. Um, Is the problem here that we we mourn nature too little or too much? Because you can get both, I've heard both arguments that we're so grief stricken, we're paralysed, or we're not really that bothered, therefore we don't do anything. I definitely think that the all the books actually make you think about this weird kind of dichotomy between like feeling too little and feeling too much, because either we we don't feel like it has any relevance to us in our daily lives, or we suddenly kind of get this wave of horrible empathy and depression and we shut it away because it's a bit too, it's overwhelming, it's too much to cope with. Um, but I think what Morning Nature, one of the books uh, was really good at um, raising as an idea, was that mourning can be this really helpful process for getting past that initial kind of overwhelming wave of feeling because it structures your emotions and it like gives you um, a process to work through. Like she talks about traditional Jewish mourning practices where people, um, the mourners, say the Kaddish um, and they have to say it every day for up to a year. And it forces them to kind of stop what they're doing and uh, focus on the person that's that they've lost. And I think often, in maybe in secular or Western societies, mourning is quite a personal thing. It's really private. People kind of retreat into themselves, and it's and they don't interact with other people. And it's actually quite counterproductive. But by looking at these other models of mourning, we can imagine new ways to like come together and actually move past it. But people have still got to care. I guess the the problem is that there's often this world you feel people are writing and preaching to the converted because there's a bunch of people who read these books, one imagines, who care deeply about the environment and ecological catastrophe. And there's a whole world out there that doesn't care, who will never really mourn. How do you how do you bridge the gap to them? Do they even consider that as a problem? I think it's really difficult to when you're faced with like blanket denial to really know how to navigate your way around that because it's like putting up a wall it's because it's it comes I think from people being scared and uh, being defensive and wanting to protect themselves and their own do you think that's where climate change denial comes from yeah I I think um, there was actually a really interesting article in energy humanities one of the other books um, where the author Jean-Francois Mouhot um, he draws parallels between slavery and fossil fuels in terms of their effect and their role in our economy and how like fossil fuel lobbies and climate deniers have the same vested interests as the slave owners who were opposed to abolition. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that's, that's again, that comes back to th- this idea of self-protection and there being a limit to how much you can give up. So when we were talking about the whole polar bear thing, part of the reason that's a problem is because it will, it will capture the imagination of the people who are already in line with the cause but they'll probably still continue to drive the cars they drive and live the way they live as well as perhaps donating the odd five pounds to to these charities so that's the kind of the biggest problem isn't it it's this matter of it being a degree between a a denier 
and someone who, who says they care. Do we even like the term denier? Because it's obviously done as a parallel to Holocaust denier, isn't it? Mm. And it came out subsequent to that. And I've been around people who don't fully believe the science of climate change. And they do seem to have this slightly hectoring kind of belief in, in something that I can't quite see. But is it a problem that people who are fully cognizant of the problems call them deniers in the way that you'd call a Holocaust denier a denier? Is that, is that part of the problem, do you think? Or, or do you have to call a spade a spade? Well, I think it doesn't need to be a really critical, nasty thing. It could, like, if we acknowledge that we're all deniers on some level, we're all in denial about what we're doing and how we're living and how we profit from other people's losses and, like, the natural world's losses, then it's more about coming together and acknowledging it as as a whole, as a whole population, rather than being divisive about it and saying, I'm a believer, you're a denier, or whatever. Mm. It's the answer to be more positive, because one of the things that comes out of this is that if you just say to people, everything's screwed they sort of curl into a fetal ball and and they they say well i can't do anything so is the answer to be a bit happy clappy and say come on you like that flower there don't you let's let's do what we can to make sure that another flower like that exists in future that's one of the is that one of the messages in in the book yeah one um one of the contributors to walking on lava uh, which is a collection of essays as part of the dark mountain project which was started to kind of bring together ecologically interested artists and writers. One of the contributors, Vinay Gupta, describes himself as part mystic, part engineer, descended from Scottish peasants and Indian scholars, which I think itself is enough. Um, He talks about how um, apocalypse is a really unhelpful sort of premise because it's it's immobilising and we don't Mm. really know what to do with that. And it's also, we don't really believe it because we're always told about apocalypses of different kinds, like if it's nuclear, and they don't happen, so we're kind of conditioned to think that they're just scare stories. But if we take a more positive approach that's like celebratory of what's here, it could be more productive. But it's interesting because actually one of the editors of Walking on Lava, Paul Kingsnorth, He's famous for describing himself as a, quote, recovering environmentalist. He thinks it's naive, basically, to think that, oh, if we just find the right solution, if we just do a compelling enough campaign, we'll sort this problem out. He thinks it should be more about just accepting that we're basically screwed and that there's not really anything. And do what? Attempting to slow it down, surely? I think, I think it's just kind of um, acknowledging that the end is already happening and then... I mean, personally, I find it, I don't think that that would be very productive. I think it's a bit extreme, but it's interesting that the book compares the two approaches. It shows um, you how far things have gone, really. Mm, that that, that, that uh, there can be a post. Yeah, uh, and that post can somehow be con- seen by someone as constructive, because it's his argument, therefore, that if you recognise the reality of it, you at least do something, even if it's to forestall the inevitable. Yeah, I think also he's probably opposed to the kind of greenwashing of technology and thinking and like sort of embedding solutions in the problem if you think that the problem's like capitalism or whatever then you think that just coming up with these green inventions isn't is just putting a sticking plaster rather than actually like did you see that one which was that um they found a, something that eats way back uh, eats away plastic a bacteria an enzyme. Oh, it, was an, yeah. it was an enzyme was it? Like yeah that. it was an enzyme that away plastic and i saw that was it was a splash of one of the papers and at one level you thought Oh, great. Yeah, but, <laughs> no, nothing to worry about there. They found a way of destroying all that plastic. And- yeah, but I mean, yeah, it, it, I can see how that w- is must be counterproductive because we've only just, this government in, in the UK has only just said that it will pass the most meagre of amendments to the way that we consume plastic in this country by saying that they'll ban single-use plastic. I mean, 
we need something so much more drastic than that. So to then say, oh, but it's okay because we found an enzyme that can process plastic. What does that even mean? It's surely we've only pushed the the problem further down. Where's that waste from the yeah. enzyme going to end up? I, I, Just finally, <laughs> you read these books. Were you happy or sad? Were you depressed <laughs> or positive having read them? I think it's they help you accept that it's okay to be sad that you shouldn't be scared of it because that's the problem really is when we're afraid of letting ourselves feel sad there was one analogy that I remember um I think it was Nancy Menning in Morning Nature she describes how if you're not if you haven't grieved for the death of your grandmother if you haven't let yourself acknowledge that she's gone then you're not going to be attending very well to the health of your mother which I thought was just quite a good analogy for we need to accept the things that have gone and let ourselves feel sad about them if we're going to like care about what's still here. Claire Saxby, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. The classical period, whether it's history or its myths, has long provided fertile grounds for modern fiction. Robert Gray's extraordinary I, Claudius from 1934 and its sequel Claudius the God, and much more recently Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles and Circe which we heard about on last week's show, being only some of the better-known and more successful examples. Part of the appeal, of course, is that the history, made so compelling by all the banishments, controversial returns, and of course literal and figurative backstabbing, is itself saturated with myths. As Stig mentioned earlier, the figures and reigns of Caligula and his successor Claudius are no exception. Caligula did not make his horse a senator, nor did he give it a marble manger and he probably didn't commit incest either. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. Another plus in drawing from history is the sheer number of minor characters whose opinions and perspective we haven't really had the time or perhaps inclination to focus on before. And this is what we get in Simon Turney's novel Caligula, reviewed in this week's TLS by Mary Beard. It is, Mary points out, a familiar device of fictional biography to pick a narrator who has privileged access to the main character, though it's sufficiently marginal to the action and sufficiently unknown that they can be reinvented with impunity. Servants, secretaries, or as here, minor female relations, are common choices. Now that minor female character in this instance is Lavilla, Caligula's exiled sister. And on the line to tell us more is Mary Beard herself. Hello, Mary. Hello. Hello. So um, before we go into the successes and failures of Simon Turney's novel, perhaps we could have a quick recap of the successes and failures of Caligula's reign. I mean, you know, what, what do we know or what do we think we know about it? Well, it's gone down in history, um, partly thanks to the biography of Suetonius as a real low point or a real high point of imperial vice. And lots of the kind of stories that we know about being a bad emperor, um, you know, thinking yourself as a god, casual acts of violence against the Senate and added sprinkling of sexual excess, all that come with Caligula. Now, the difficulty about Caligula, and it's true for many Roman emperors, is that 99.9% of the material that has come down to us about him is from after his death. And there's a basic rule, really, that the, the reputation of any Roman emperor really depends on what their successors wanted it to be. And it was hugely convenient for the successors of Caligula, uh, who was was very nastily murdered in AD 41, 
it was very convenient for them to say he was rightly and justly murdered because he had been a monster. Now, I, I wouldn't in any way go so far as to say that, you know, poor old Caligula was a, was a nice bloke who was tragically misunderstood, but certainly there's a huge justificatory animus which drives almost all the later accounts of his reign. But there were some successes, because didn't he, in effect, sort of set the scene and enable Claudius's subsequent invasion of, of Britain? <laughs> well, he, he does move up northern Europe and eventually then, in the, the famous story, gets the, the troops to pick up seashells on the shore. Now, you can, if you like, say, oh, look, you know, that's one of those nasty bits of spin. You know, what he was really doing was paving the way for a proper invasion. Um, or you can say, as most Romans said, it was a complete vanity project and he was bonkers anyway. <laughs> and in the end, he just decided to take a seashell collection home. <laughs> um, you mentioned Suetonius. And um, it's interesting because I imagine the vast majority of people who have a view on Caligula will never have read Suetonius. Uh, so, <laughs> well, so, so after Suetonius, uh, where does it get pushed into popular culture, do you think? Well, I think recently... It's the Malcolm McDowell, Gorvidal movie, yeah. the penthouse movie, you know, uh, famous for both representing, well, giving you a glimpse of the real excesses of the reign of Caligula, but also had a load of famous actresses and actors in, must have been 60s or 70s. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of nudity in it, wasn't there? There was a hell of a lot of nudity yeah. and a hell of a lot of a kind of Caligula and sisters, because in this account, of course, they were having incest, sort of trotting naked through the grass. And it, the, the puzzle to, for most viewers, I think, was why these famous uh, actors like Gilgood and people like this, why they'd actually gone along with being in this um, in this extraordinary penthouse movie. And the story got out, and I don't know if it's true, um, that there were two completely separate shoots. <laughs> and, and the famous actors all believed they were doing a serious biography <laughs> of Caligula. And you know, in the evening, the penthouse pets emerged <laughs> on a completely different um, time scale. What a compelling <laughs> theory. <laughs> it, is, it is a wonderful theory. But presumably, think, Gore, think... presumably Gore Vidal's name on it was, because by that point, was he... Was he well respected by that point of the dark. Well, he must have he was, been. yeah. Yes, he must have it's, it's interesting, though, that, that the film is, I think, still banned in, in some countries that you would expect it not to be. I think it might be banned in Canada. I, when I was giving <laughs> a, 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 a course a, a, a few years ago on um, images of the Roman emperor and how they had been kind of put into popular culture, um, uh, the highlight of the course was um, not only um, this um, uh, 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 seeing the movie, but also seeing the promo videos that were made for it, where um, the penthouse pets came on screen and explained what they thought of Caligula. Well, that sounds good. I, to be honest, I've not seen this film. And, and Is it high, high camp fun or is it slightly more seedy than that? Um, it feels to me rather more seedy, yeah. but you, but you you know you you are looking at Gilgood. I think there's I think Helen Mirren's in it, um, and, and Peter O'Toole. Oh and Malcolm McDowell is the, the, the is in the title lead. He he must have known what was happening was in the good. evenings. Um, uh, there, there does seem to be such a such a strong draw then, because I'm thinking now of of the BBC. Um, uh, adaptation of I Claudius and the names in that I mean 
altogether different production. Um, but the names in that, Derek Jacoby, John Hurt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, Caligula is you know, an extremely powerful um, episode in that whole BBC I, Claudius um, series. And, and, there's a, 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 and it, they actually add to some of the blood, gore and disgust. Because I remember being, when I watched it first, really shocked when um, Caligula actually um, effectively murders his sister um, by, who is pregnant by him in this version, by actually cutting her open and getting the fetus out. I mean, you know, oh it God. was... Um, you couldn't show it on British telly now, I don't think. Uh, there's an interesting point there, because, because uh, Thea mentioned I, Claudius, uh, which is one of my favourite novels. Like, I've read it a few times, and I think it is, is, is wonderful. If you're trying to write about this area, like Simon Turney's book, how, how large is the shadow of, of I, Claudius over, over, over this whole genre, do you think? Well, you know, you, you say that you love the book, and, um, uh, uh, you know, I guess that there's lots of people who are with you, Stick, but... I have to say... Are you about to, are you about to ruin my dreams here, Mary? You're telling me it's not very good. I, well, I've always... I was one of those people, and must be many of us, who saw the TV series before we read ah, the book. Yeah. And uh, actually, I always thought the television series um, had much more oomph in it than the book. You know, there was, you know, there was really dreary, long patches where they were out of Rome and fighting people uh, in the book, as I remember. So, but I, I guess, nevertheless, that you're right, that in, the, that in some ways these people are always talking to I, Claudius. You can't, you know, you can't write about an early, an early Roman emperor without sort of seeing graves over your shoulder. And of course, Graves was a translator of Suetonius as well as the writer of these novels. Um, he, I think he didn't like being famous for the novels. I've got a feeling I read somewhere that on his grave it said, said Poeta. just to make money. Yeah, and his grave said Poeta. Oh, uh, really? on it, right. and, he, and that's yeah. what he wanted to be yeah. known as. And well, of course, everyone only knew him for for for, for Claudius. Well, those of us who read Suetonius know him because he did the Penguin translation. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that you know, in some ways, that partly explains what Turney is doing because what Graves did for us, really, whether you like the novels or not, particularly, is that he established this idea of Claudius as the slightly eccentric, slightly bumbling, reluctant emperor who, through whose eyes, we can see the goings on. I mean, in some ways, in, in, in Graves' novel, Claudius, until he becomes emperor, yeah. is a bit part through, um, through whose eyes we, we view um, the goings on in the imperial court. Um, and what Turney does is um, he takes that image head on and relying on some quite good, actually, mod modern work on Claudius and his relationship to Caligula. He says, look, you know, you know w w we, we've bought, we bought the, the ancient and then particularly the Gravesian version of the, the, the nice old uncle Claudius who's um, a reluctantly drawn to the throne. Actually, what about wondering whether Claudius wasn't the evil genius behind all this? You know, and that story that is so famous and repeated often that um, Caligula is murdered, uh, is murdered on the Palatine near the Imperial Palace. And um, it's one of those, you know, oh my God, what do we do next kind of moments in assassination. They kill, they kill Caligula. They're quite 
know what to do, whether they should restore the Democratic Republic. And then um, a posse of the Praetorian Guard, you know, whizzing through the palace and they can draw back a curtain and there's poor old Claudius hiding, you know, saying, oh, you know, uh, you know, I'm terribly scared. And they say, oh, come on, we'll make him the emperor then. As a, almost, <laughs> almost as a joke. You know? Almost as a joke. So Claudius kind of becomes emperor, um, you know, just because he happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, uh, that has been a story which, um, you know, it has delighted people. It's, and it's, you know, it's taken its really, really strong place in the Claudian and the Caligulan mythology. Turney says, as some scholars have suggested, look, come on, guys. Um, you know, normally, um, the, the person who has planned the assassination, normally, is the person who comes to the throne yeah. next. You know, how come we have believed this, you know, extraordinary bit of spin um, that the Claudian regime must have put out afterwards, you know, saying, oh, I never wanted to do it, but I'm just kind of saving my country. And so he nicely, and it is in the sense a reply to, to Graves, I guess, he rather nicely has Claudius as the real wicked guy. I mean, Caligula's not great. He's got frightful issues. He's from a dysfunctional family. Uh, you couldn't expect the poor kid to be normal. Um, and he certainly isn't. Um, but uh, Claudius, it's Claudius who masterminds the, you know, the getting rid of Caligula and then plunks himself, as was the plan all along, on the throne. And just on a on a final point, Lavilla, who who we get this from her perspective, uh, Caligula's sister, she's not exactly an uncomplicated figure, is she? No, no historically no. at least. No, and yeah, what you what you find, I mean, one of the one of the nice things that that Turney's book does, and uh, you know, the, the Roman imperial family is you know is, is you know ripe for this, is that you know you actually see um, you know the the inevitable dysfunction of any kind of personal relationship um, when you are in that kind of murderous bit of self-regarding power politics. People are married off, people's sisters betray them. Um, You can't trust anybody. This is court culture in which everybody is looking at everybody else. You you are going to be betrayed by your best friend or by your uncle or whatever. And um, there is no character in any of this um, who... Uh, who emerges psychically unscathed. Uh, when you're reading books like this, I love, as Theo knows, I love historical fiction. I find it's a sort of guilty of pleasure of mine. But you're, I'm not an expert in anything. You're an expert in, in the classical world. Do you have to switch that part of your brain off? Or are you constantly saying, Suetonius doesn't say that. That's not That's not right. They'd, ne- they'd never wear that thing there. What are you doing? Well, in some ways, that's the pleasure of historical fiction, isn't it? When, you're, um, when it's your period. You know, part of the pleasure, rather than the irritation, is saying, oh, they've got that wrong, or, <laughs> oh, you know, God, that's a clever idea, because, you know, ancient history is so happily full of gaps yeah. that, uh, that a novelist can actually put this together in a way that a, a, a factual historian wouldn't dare, uh, in a way that can make you kind of sit up and say, oh, hi, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> so I, I rather like that... Um, slightly kind of finger-wagging uh, relationship <laughs> I have to these texts. I can imagine because, that. It, you know, because you know it's a joke. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, we can't take this too seriously. Mary, thank you so much for, for joining us today and thank you for this review. Pleasure.
I love a bit of historical fiction. Yeah, I have so many questions as well because because the um, the cast is so huge for for this kind of work, and there, you know there are so many characters, and we feel like we know them all. You want to know how they've all been translated in this most recent work. How I've, does Messalina come across? You know, the wife of Claudius, yeah. who's so hateful and easy to hate in everything else that you've read or seen. In Italy, are they, uh, when Italian school, are these, is this like, this like the Tudors for us? That, you know, you constantly get sort of... Yes, what you do at school, you learn about the Roman empress. Do you do that in Italy? I don't know. I mean, remember, I didn't go to an Italian school, oh, yeah. but you probably probably do. I mean, it's it's the foundation of, of modern civilization, I suppose. And do Italians um, regard it as that? I presume they must be... Well, it's very complicated in Italy because, of course, Italy didn't exist until the, the mid to late 1800s. That's right, yeah. So it's young, the, Italy is younger than Notts County Football Club. Quite as, possibly. As my history teacher once told me. <laughs> Good and to we're, know. We're about to have David Horsepool in to talk about this, but talk about <laughs> football and history. Segue, it, but no, Kicking it, a ball. Yeah, Italy is younger than Notts County. Yeah, well, there you go. So, I mean, whether whether or not they would trace a... You know, it's difficult to trace a direct line back, though obviously Mussolini was always nodding uh, yeah, later. Yeah. He came along and he was always nodding back to these days of grandeur. So so it didn't turn out that well when they have done that in the past? No, well, I mean, you know, all civilizations are, are made to, to, to fail eventually. Huh. <laughs> oh, thank you for that, Theo. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, why on earth is the TLS an esteemed organ of intellectual and cultural heft concerning itself with the exigencies of association football? As I'm sure an email to me will read this week after publication of David Horsepool's meditation on the life and work of former Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger. Well, Wenger was a significant figure in modern British culture, a manager who sought to make the beautiful game more beautiful, who encouraged an influx of talent from Europe, a figure that united, as it were, people in admiration and respect. He's also been published in the TLS, of course, as one of the signatories of a letter imploring Britain to stay in the EU. 
So it is perhaps fitting that Wenger has no place in post-Brexit Britain. Like all political careers, managerial careers must end in failure. And Arsenal's disinterested and weak performance had led to deafening clarion calls for Wenger to go. To judge his impact and historical context, we're joined by history editor and Arsenal fan, it must be said, David Horspool. David, hello. Hello. Um, do you think people will welcome the fact that we're talking in the TLS about no, Arsenal Wenger? No, I, d- I don't suppose m- most of them will, because even if they like football, most of them won't like Arsenal. But um, People like Arsenal a bit, you know, I think. They, they used to, and maybe they do again because they're not, they're not very threatening to whoever else you support. So, so what, maybe, maybe everyone does like Arsenal again. What is the mythology of Arsenal? Because you talk about this in the piece, that all football clubs, if they, particularly if they don't have success, need mythology. Well, yes, I think, I think that a, a football club's myth can be a substitute for success because it's in the nature of sport that you can't be successful all the time um i I suppose you know fans of manchester city at the moment would say well we don't have a myth about our club our club's just the best club in in the country but it hasn't always been thus it's so newbie as well man city being good (laughs) i know they were good in the 70s but i I know man city fans who are not particularly happy with the current state of affairs no, my but my dad is one of them i think because it's it's one through pure money rather than oh and they don't like that no i no. mean well no i don't think you would if you were a, a you know a proper fan I just think you have it's to just accept- a competition over who over who has most money well i think that's what you have to accept don't you? I, you know well there is a bit of that but it's not long ago since leicester city no, that's mm. true. uh won, that's true. won the league so it is possible to kind of buck those trends but i think i think those myths that i was thinking about um other clubs that have quite strong myths, and in fact two of them that do have recently sacked their managers, West Ham and um, Everton. So West Ham know themselves as the academy, Everton call themselves the school of science. Both of them have a sort of adherence to uh, fine, free-flowing football, and neither of their managers, although they both did what they were asked to do, which was keep them in the Premier League, keep the bucks coming in, um, have uh, found favour, and particularly at Everton. Sam Allardyce. Sam Allardyce, yeah. ex-England manager, has just been sacked, um, basically for doing what he was asked to do. That Everton were about to be relegated, he kept them in, in the Premier League. But um, they were, or, and he's out. Because I'm from Nottinghamshire, and Forest have the same thing. Nottingham Forest, I mean, they're so insignificant that it's barely worth <laughs> thinking of. But... They were always known as a, a, a team that passed the ball well and yeah. the beautiful game. And, and Arsenal have had a kind of conflicting reputation, haven't they? Because at one point there, they were known as boring, boring Arsenal. Absolutely. And then under Wenger, were they changing the mythology under Wenger then to becoming something? Well, I, I, I argue, if, if my piece can be said to have an argument, that there was a, <laughs> uh, some kind of connection between uh, what, what Wenger encouraged and something from... Arsenal's more distant past, which was the arrival of the great manager Herbert Chapman in in the thirty in the twenties. Sorry, he he stayed there till the thirties, um, and he did revolutionise Arsenal's approach. He made them this kind of club of almost of the establishment, um, and there is a sense in which Wenger got back to that sort of uh, self identity. Um, and of course, all that works while you're bringing home the bacon, uh, which for the first 10 years of his 22 years, Arsene Wenger certainly did. And uh, while he could do it and uh, produce this wonderful, free-flowing, high-scoring football, he was very, very popular beyond Arsenal, I think. But it, but it is a while since he did bring home oh, yeah. said bacon. Um, is he? Do we see Arsene Wenger as one of the, the last... Kind of long haul emperors 
uh, you know, along with Alex Ferguson, who were brought yeah. in and allowed to stay, and now we've moved to this and this to model fail. of well, and allowed to fail. Yeah, well, whereas now we're in this model it, of tight margins and justifying the huge amounts that we spent. It's well, yeah, I think there there is uh, certainly something to that. Um, it's always said of Ferguson that he was within a match or two of of getting the sack. The same can't be said of Wenger because he arrived and was instantly fantastically successful. Um, they, they won the double of FA Cup and League in the first year that he was in charge. Um, so he he didn't have to sort of be allowed to fail. Perhaps he he sort of led his career in reverse. Yeah, in saved it up. Yeah, he saved up his failures for later. Although Arsenal did win the FA Cup three times in the last four right, years. Right. Yeah, but they were <laughs> but they were loyal to him, weren't they? The board were loyal. The fans got less and less loyal, and and this is also, I think partly to do with this myth there's a there's a double thing partly it's just cold hard cash that Wenger up until a couple of seasons ago always got Arsenal into the Champions League where more money is to be made from television selling more seats and um, he'd done that 17 years in a row which no other club even including Manchester United had managed to do Um, and while he did that while fans weren't particularly happy because it didn't they weren't actually winning anything well qualifying for this this competition uh it kept the board happy because the money kept rolling in um and now for the second season they failed to do that and Arsene's out on his ear and are the fans because you know you make an excellent point that Wenger began his career when the first iPhone was released yeah during, uh, during his time and the yeah. Wenger must go was it Wenger must go Wenger yeah out? yeah Wenger it became out. a meme I mean, it became it, a meme didn't it absolutely you would see Wenger out not only at Arsenal matches but you'd see people holding up Wenger out signs at ice hockey matches in Calgary and yeah. you know, in sumo and in Tokyo or whatever um, and he managed to resist all that and in, in a way there were some fairly traditional uh, expressions of that as well people flew planes over matches saying Wenger out and he even made a joke about it after his last match because a plane flew over that said Merci Arsène and he was asked about it and he said yes I think they put the wrong banner on today <laughs> Um, uh, and, P- and there was Piers Morgan famously was talked about it all the time and how vi- how vicious did it get toward him because football always strikes me going to it when I was younger it's far more vicious than you'd want it to be in terms of how it's supported and I know it's important you know yeah. more important than life and death and all those cliches but it always surprises me how viciously it is supported and a- how angry people feel about it yeah I, I never cease to be amazed I've been going to Arsenal for almost 40 years and I do never cease to be amazed by how horrible fans can be, not particularly to other teams' players, but to their own players and their own manager, how little patience they have for people who are clearly trying their best you know, 99% of the time. And, of course, the justification, which is a perfectly reasonable one, is that these guys are paid an enormous amount of money to run around, and well, if they're not running around enough... And also the club right of charge. I mean, it seems to me that once football has been so permeated by money, and it costs... I imagine the season ticket at Arsenal is just an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, it is. Uh, and individual tickets are a lot, and they're getting paid a lot, and, and Sky and BT are shoving loads of money in. Does that provide an, an excuse for that? Because once the same thing happened in baseball, interestingly, in America, once they were allowed to do free agency moves and the players went from earning 30 grand a year to 3 million mm. in about five years. And everyone turned on the players because yeah. they, they were doing the job that we all want to do for ourselves and they're not only doing it, they're getting becoming millionaires for it. Is that Does that provide the justification, do you think? Yes, I think that partly does. And in Wenger's case, um, he was... 
incredibly committed and sort of worked seven days a week. He always said, and I, I believe him, but he was extraordinarily well paid. I think he was paid something like eight million pounds a year uh, to do the job. So that was another reason for people who were disaffected. And by the end, I would include myself as a fan among them, but I wasn't, you know, shouting for the rooftops or starting memes. But <laughs> Quietly discussing things in libraries about him. Um, Well, I found this amazing. You said the Arsenal, the preferred myth has been of class. Marble halls, flowers in the opposition colours in the director's dining room on match days, old Etonians on the board. I didn't realise Arsenal were posh, did you? Well, yeah, the fact that I always thought of them as the posh club goes to show, I mean, me with a passing interest in Absolutely. football really goes to show how pervasive that myth is. Yeah, Definitely. Per- and and the, the ridiculous old Etonians on the board thing. I mean, I think the chairman, I mean, the owner of, of Arsenal, the two majority shareholders are, are from overseas yeah. are American and um, Uzbek. But the uh, chairman is still a man who rejoices in the name of, of Sir Chips Keswick. Um, I'm pretty sure he must be an old Etonian. Certainly his predecessor, uh, Peter Hillwood, was. was and Peter Hillwood's work. predecessor, Dennis Hillwood, was too. <laughs> and Related? famously, the Queen Mother is said to have been an Arsenal fan because she was very keen on Dennis Compton, who played for Arsenal. Um, uh, he and his brother, Dennis and Leslie, both played for Arsenal. So there is this kind of slightly ludicrous... Um, Lineage. Yeah, class uh, thing going on there. Just finally, I don't. I hate to mention Brexit, but why not? Um, <laughs> was Wenger kind of a bastion of pro-Europeanism, do you think? I was interested, Jürgen Klopp was interviewed in Channel 4 News like a month ago, the Liverpool manager, and he extraordinarily anti-Brexit. Yeah. In a place which is pretty pro-Brexit, you know, certain wards of that area would be very pro-Brexit in Liverpool, I'd have thought. Do you think, and Wenger, of course, signed that letter that came to the TLS? As did Per Mertesacker, the the club captain. Yeah. So do you think there's an argument that football was a kind of bastion of Europeanism, of... of well, uh, yeah, I think and Arsene Wenger certainly was the first uh, manager to introduce sort of leagues and leagues of, of, of foreign players and, and, produ- and fielded a team with no English players whatsoever in it, although that wasn't, I don't think, his preference. So certainly he, he has a European outlook. He's, he's French. My brother always says he's not really French, he's German. He's, in fact, from Alsace. Yeah. So he has that kind of... Uh, all-round European outlook. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what was remarkable about Jurgen Klopp was not that he was willing to be drawn on whether he thought Brexit was a good or a bad idea, but he's willing to talk about it at length. And I think that's a a door that Wenger has also opened. He's famously willing to answer questions on almost anything at his press conferences. And people would, journalists would get copy, you know, asking him about all sorts of things about political Because he was kind of clever. Yeah, he's just, I mean, I think he's an economics graduate. I mean, he's, yeah, he's interested in the wider world as well as being a total football obsessive. On one final note, can I, can I just say Liverpool voted to remain... Ward, that's why I said wards of Liverpool, oh, okay, which would have okay, voted okay. to. I know, I know you're yes, from Liverpool yes, and you want to defend its honour. You know, and they're in the Champions League final, which is a very European thing for <laughs> exactly. them to, yeah. to do. Okay. Right, as you were. Yeah, okay, thank you, dear. <laughs> uh, let, let's stop now. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Horsepool, Mary Beard, and Claire Saxby. Thea, do you want to plug festivals? So next week we've got the live podcast, yes. um, Lucy and I in Bath on the 24th, uh, talking to Robert Webb and Margaret Drabble. Um, just a standard podcast very same, just, just, a, just a normal day for us it's, it's a cliche <laughs> um, the same day you're in Hay I'm I think. off to Hay and then I'm doing talking to Ian not for the podcast well, we might try and record it we might yes, try and get yeah, the, talk to Ian McEwen about translating his films onto the screen
well, perfect. And then the week after that, I'm in Hay. And then I think we can all have a little rest. Yeah, too many literary festivals. (laughs) Do find yourself a copy of the paper, of course, which also contains some fine pieces on popular science, female gamekeepers, near death by coma, and an interview with Brett Easton Ellis. They're not all connected. Next week, Thea and Lucy are on the road trip to Bath. So that's what the podcast will be, won't it? Exactly. Hooray, I'll take a break. It will be be a day late, just in case anyone sets their clocks by it. And panics. So it'll be be Friday morning. (laughs) It'll be Friday. Friday morning, Thea, Lucy, Margaret Drabble and Robert Webb. Exactly. Enjoy that. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.